Hey, welcome back to the Gospel Rant. I'm Dr. Bill Sinyard. This is actually a, a dual podcast. We're running this uh, series, Christianityism versus the Gospel, in both, haven't heard that before, and Gospel Rant. We're looking at the passages, the 15 pas- passages in the Old Testament where God says, I am with you. I am with you. Only 15 where it's clear. Uh, and uh, it's a mini series. God is saying this to someone or some group, and and I want us us to see this in our context today in this pandemic of loneliness, this uh, post-COVID sense of loneliness and disconnectedness, our corporate longing for being connected and being wanted. But I'm also making a contrast between alive Christianity, the stuff that Jesus embodied, read Luke 4, 18 to 19, this God with us, more than just geographically or, or intentionally pursuing, but grasping and hugging and being empathetic towards real deep relationship, strictly because of what Jesus did for me 2,000 years ago. Uh, a contrast between that and the modernistic, secular Christianity-ism that frankly looks a lot more like deism. Sure, God loves me, quote-unquote, and is philosophically with me, quote-unquote, But because I'm flesh and sinful flesh, I shouldn't expect to experience that real deep emotional intimate withness until I get to heaven. And hopefully I get it then, but I feel like I've been such a disappointment. But right now it doesn't really affect my life. It doesn't make a difference in my sense of significance, security, and belonging. So I just need to lean into my own understanding and effort and power to do good things. And hopefully I get God's attention, and he doesn't just reject me or forget me or turn away in disappointment. Well, the ancients didn't have that modern notion. God with them, God with us meant something. It's more than just me being with my microphone as I say this, right? I'm I'm with my microphone, but oh my goodness, that's so objectifying. This with us when God is talking is, is an impactful relationship that changes us. It should be noticeable. It should move me. It should move us. It it should grasp my attention and focus. It should motivate me, diminish my fears, satiate my loneliness a little or a lot. Now, there are only 15 cases, as I mentioned, where God says, I am with you. And in these verses, uh, we're going to read the phrase and contemplate the phrase in a way I believe that the ancients got it. God was with them so much that they felt it, and they needed to feel it because of the the great fears and shame, you know, of their failures. But in all cases, they needed to feel it, his favor and calling. And that was God's desire as well, and it was noticeable. Okay. The fourth mention, we've already looked at three, the fourth mention of God saying, I'm with you, comes from a very interesting section in Isaiah 41. Some context. In Isaiah 41, God begins a trial where he is a judge, and the nations and their idols uh, are, are the defendants. They're false gods. All of them are standing before him. And the trial is to determine who is the more powerful. And all of this is for the purpose, it would seem, of reminding Israel who God is. And then, therefore, they can trust God and turn back to God and throw themselves in God's arms again. I, look, this is so patient of God. I mean, it looks so much like Jesus. We, we just have to see that, right? Israel is has been pursuing other deities of all the powerful nations around them, 
uh, making little idols and wearing talismans around their necks. They Look, I get it. You know, I don't do the talisman or the little uh, metal idols, but other than that, you know, I, I don't do statues as much as I do money or success or career or other people's opinions of me, my opinion of myself, uh, clinging to this or that philosophy. Christianityism is an idol. So all sin can be described as me or you looking for significance, security, and belonging anywhere other than God and in his loving arms, in that loving relationship. Well, if that's sin, man, I sin all the time. We sin all the time because we pursue and worship so many other gods. I mean, I'm just saying, God could, could say, I'm done with you, Israel, because you're betraying me. Yeah, you know, you, you, you're going against covenant, you're disobeying me, you know, I've told you a thousand times, or strike three and you're out, or however you want to go with that. So I'm going to find someone else. I mean, I just can't stand it. And the, and the wages of sin is death, right? Well, good luck with that. And certainly, as the Jew approaches the temple in Jerusalem as a failure, they have to be wondering in their shame that very thing. Oh my goodness, I've messed up this year. I haven't been faithful to God. I've been stricken with with fear so much so that I picked up idols and talismans. And then and the nation, you know, I'm walking past statue of deity after deity. Why in the world would God not judge us, much less hold hold up his covenant with us? I mean, we've broken it so many times. We should be ashamed of ourselves because we're not enough, faithful enough, righteous enough, son of God enough, daughter of God enough. So we should be condemned. But that's not the trial that we see in Isaiah 41. It's so different than what our critical inner voice thinks. You know, the, the, the voice says, well, I see an angry God with us or a God who loves me with us. They're both with us. So which will I see? So let the trial begin. Isaiah 41.1, be silent before me, God says, you islands, let the nations renew their strength. Let them come forward and speak. Let us meet together at the place of judgment. This is the courtroom scene. Courtroom of God is a place of judgment and a place normally to be feared by sinful nations. And that's all of us. (laughs) Hold that thought. So, He's calling for testimony from nations and their idols and their gods. Okay, in in my presence, let everyone see, come and show the world, and Israel, my child, what you've really got, right? The floor is yours, but first, God says, I'm going to make my case. Verse 2, who is it? I mean, who has stirred up the one from the east, calling him in righteousness to his service? Uh, well, I mean, the, the obvious answer is God has, and this is referring most likely to Cyrus, the great Babylonian king. So God is saying, asking the question, who was it who called Cyrus and all of his armies? Was it that deity that's leaning on the table over there, the uh, the statuette, or Yahweh? Well, God's saying that it was, it was him. He controls Cyrus, uh, who he has called like a dog with a dog whistle. I mean, you know, this isn't a this is a parlor trick for God. Pretty good statement of God's authority and power. And by the way, there's no objection from the defendant. The gold statuette is silent. And so God continues, it was he, God, who handed the entire nations over to Cyrus. He subdued kings before him. 
all on God's behalf, right? For whatever purpose God has, he is just using Cyrus, right? Like a crescent wrench, a hammer. And again, no objections from the talismans on the necks of the Israelis, right? And God says, he turns them to dust with his sword, the nations to windblown chaff with his bow. It's all God. He's just using the crescent wrench Cyrus. So he, God, does all of these amazing things on his own for his own purposes, right? And remember, the next testimony has got to come from the other deities, and they're going to say, oh, yeah, well, here's what I've done. Here's my curriculum vitae. Here's my resume, <laughs> which is not going to be very impressive because they're, they're just stone. They're just rock. They're just things made out of metal. Verse 3, he pursues them and moves them unscathed by a path his feet have not traveled before, speaking of Cyrus, who has done this and carried it through, calling forth the generations from the beginning? I, the Lord, with the first of them and with the last, I am he, I'm the one. So to be clear, who did all this? And by the way, who did history from the beginning to, to the end? Oh, Yahweh says, that's me. He's the only one raising his hands. He's the great I am. He's above history. He's above all time. And not just above time, he controls time every millisecond. And look, it's above my pay grade, but this is God's testimony, so don't shoot the messenger. Verse 5, the, the islands have seen it and fear. The ends of the earth tremble. They approach and come forward. And each of them, each helps the other, saying to his brother, uh, idolater, that's the idea, is be strong, right? Don't be afraid. Sounds like a lot of modern counseling. So everyone else has seen it, Israel, and, and they're scared to death of Yahweh, ultimately, verse 7. And then there's the craftsman who encourages the goldsmith, and he who smooths the hammer spurs on him who strikes with an anger, and he says of the welding, it's good. He nails down the idol so it will not topple. Pretty funny image. Anyway, so Nate, Israel and the nations see it meaning God's, uh, Cyrus's conquest controlled by God and history controlled by God, all time controlled by God, and they're shaking in their boots. They're trembling. They're afraid of what God with them is going to do. So they got to try to encourage each other, but come on, seriously? And then someone has a great idea. You know what we need? We need better idols. <laughs> we need better gods. So get the idol maker on that. But it comes out of the furnace a bit lopsided, and somebody has to kind of nail it down under the table or it falls. It kind of flops down on its face every time. So it's helpless. It's even bad quality for, for an idol. It's lacking any power, close to Yahweh's. And so it's a comic challenge to the judge in this courtroom. But sarcastically, the idol maker looks at this thing that's bent over and nailed down and says, it's good, which has to be an illusion to Genesis, where God looks at the things that he has created. Matter of fact, where he creates all things other than himself and says it's good. All right, so this is funny, sarcastic stuff by the prophet. Well, the testimony of Yahweh in his court in Isaiah 41 is that he alone controls history, nations, armies. Uh, he purposes conquest. Uh, he purposes safety in the absence of conquest. And all mysteriously is in his wheelhouse. He doesn't always share why. He just does it, and so him with us can be either frightening or him with us can be uh, positive, loving. But 
one way or the other, God is frighteningly vast. He does his own thing. He's not asking for our permission. And Cyrus, who is humanly scary, is just a mere tool in the toolkit. And history is, is another slightly larger tool for God and God's toolkit. God's just so big. And so the pathetic trial goes on, but it shifts because <laughs> the, the idols are quiet, right? They're rock. And so Israel, by all legal mes- measures, should be shaking in their boots like the nations because nobody screwed up more over and over again. Nobody ignored Yahweh more because they're the only ones who knew about Yahweh. They, uh, and no one betrayed more, broke covenant more. And no one created, uh, committed such spiritual adultery as Israel, running to, to metal images, right? And, y- you know, the heavenlies look down and go, what's wrong with these people? And I can tell you what their inner voice is saying is, Israel, you blew it. I mean, you had it all. You had the sonship and you blew it again. You call yourself the child of Abraham, but there's nothing could be further from the truth. I mean, technically, yeah, but not spiritually, not, not like God meant. And God is so disappointed in you. And chances are he's angry at you too. Why not? And look, if it were up to me, I'd punish you severely. You're no longer a child in good standing. So God with us is going to be an angry God, right? No. <laughs> Au contraire, mon frere. God says something ridiculously different and so surprising. Verse 8, but you, O Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, you descendants of Abraham, my beloved, my friend. That's what the NIV says. But here's another translation. But you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, who I've aligned myself with, you descendants of Abraham, my beloved. Uh, you could be friend or, or beloved. Most often the word is referring to, to love, a hav. Look, I took you from the ends of the earth. Uh, verse 9, from its farthest corners, I called you. I said, you are my servant, and I have chosen you and have not rejected you. So I took you from the ends of the earth. By the way, the same ends of the earth who were trembling to see how massive God is in verse 9. Uh, Israel is his servant, same word as in verse 9, and chosen or aligned with God, same word as in verse 9. And yet Israel, he has not rejected. It's a shocker. And what follows is a, is a unique love poem from the judge. And um, look, Israel can make no claims on this relationship other than it comes from God. And God says it's still good. Verse 10, so do not fear for I am with you. There it is as the phrase we're looking at. Don't be dismayed, a different word for fear, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Remember, these were very disappointing people, and yet God says, oh, no, 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 I, I'm with you. All who rage against you, verse 11, will be surely ashamed and disgraced. Those who oppose you will be as nothing and perish. Though you search for your enemies, you won't find them. Those who wage war against you will be as nothing at all. Verse 13, for I am the Lord, your God, who takes hold of your right hand and says to you, do not fear. I will help you. Wow. Um, unexpected, uncalled for. They certainly can make no claim on having earned such love, such a covenant, such faithfulness by God. Uh, this witness that is actually emotional and positive. So I want to focus on the, the witness that I am with you. 
what I've been saying is that this is more than just geographical. You know, God is in your region. He's living at a temple nearby. In the imagery uh, of a judicial trial, it's more than just a judge deus, uh, deus right in front of them, because he's near the idols and the other nations as well. God is with them in a technical sense as well, but it sure feels differently. They're shaking in their boots, and God says to Israel, who he is with, that they shouldn't fear because he loves them. So the I am with you related to Israel is an experience of God's eternal devotion, his care, his honor, his love. And it's the, quote, I am with you, close quote, that an infant feels with their mother or prime caregiver. This is the essence of infant attunement, but only better because this is adult attunement. God is nearby, but not as an angry, vigilful judge, critically looking down upon them, disappointed in them. He is near Israel like he is near or was near his beloved friend Abraham. Again, another faulty individual, and yet God maintained his nearness, his withness. His withness. Uh, here's another example. Uh, this is not the I am with you of a father who is, never tells his child that he loves them, never hugs them, never kisses them, but he, he lives under the same roof and he still provides for them. And so uh, technically, you know, a, a father could be with them, but not ever give them the love they want. But only one reflects the I am with you of God and Israel. And so with this withness specifically, they don't need to be afraid of the judgment that's going to fall on the nations. I mean, it's crazy. It's very sensitive, empathetic on God's part to just know that they're afraid at this point and ashamed of their behavior. Uh, and and they and then that shame and fear will always kick into avoidant or anxious or fearful adult attachment styles. So God wants them to be experiencing His love, and therefore a diminishment of fear and anxiety. First John fourteen, First John four eighteen in the New Testament helps us. There is a perfect love that casts out fear, uh, not an any old love not just begrudging contractual relationship, right? If you do this, I will do that. And if you don't do that, I'm not going to do that. I mean, this is, this is perfect love. It's a powerful one-sided love. It only comes from God that can affect the fear that resonates 24-7 in those deep, dark, shadowy areas of our midbrain. That when triggers kicks into a fear cycle, releases cortisol, and causes reactionary, often stupid behavior, right? Anxious, avoidant, and fearful attachment style. By the way, I'll be doing a free online seminar in August, September timeframe, Attachment Theory for Dummies, one hour. If you want to join us, send me an email and request bill at gospel-app.com and we'll get you the information. But attachment theory is so helpful um, uh, when, when we're trying to understand us and God. And by the way, when we're working with anxious or fearful adolescents and uh, adults. So back to I am with you. There is a perfect love that actually diminishes fear and anxiety. It comes from God and it, it diminishes it a little or a lot. I am with you is that euphemism I'm suggesting for the love related to God and his chosen. It's shocking, but it's emotional. It's, it's, it's love. So what can we gain from that? Are you anxious? 
Do you struggle with fears of failures, fear of being caught, fear of being exposed, fear of being an embarrassment to God, fear that Jesus is disappointed in you, fear that people will see and then reject you, fear of rejection, fear of success, because it brings you out of the closet uh, into the limelight. Researchers telling us that such anxiety is on a huge upward trend, largely due to COVID. In a recent, and in August, CDC study, anxiety and depression is up 31%. And that's August. It's got to have gone up even more since. Well, drugs prescribed by your doctor can help some temporarily. Counseling, uh, cognitive behavioral counseling can help you understand the fear and, and work towards a behavioral solution. That can help a little, but well, there's this, there is that perfect love of God experienced, right, that Jesus purchases for you if you're a Christian 2,000 years ago that you can experience a little or a lot through the Holy Spirit's working in your inner being, right, in, in that midbrain, a little or a lot. And this perfect love, even imperfectly experienced, because that's all we can do this side of heaven, can make or cause your fear and anxiety to shrink a little bit or a lot. Not perfectly, right? That's heaven, but noticeably so. And twice in this last section that I read, does God say, do not fear? And why? Because he is the God who is with us, with them. And his love, which comes with that, is perfect. And this perfect love casts out fear. And now, they're going to have zero real effect just trying to stop being afraid. We don't have that muscle group, neither did they. I mean, you can try it. Good luck. Uh, let me know how that goes for you. But again, all because of Jesus and what he did 2,000 years ago, we Christians can access a power from God. So Ephesians 3, 14 and following, uh, in our inner being that will begin to diminish that fear, particularly fear of failure and being rejected by God. Do you want to test it? Well, we created something to give you that platform, that safe place to test all of this, right? And we beg you to do it. It's the dance, www.the-dance.org. It's powerful. It's an intensive experiential reminder for Christians that God is with you. And that means he adores you still uh, as much as the father loves the son and the son loves the father as you are. Whether you feel it right now or not, whether you've been shameful over the last period or not, whether you haven't been righteous enough, faithful enough, if you're a Christian, this is for you, and it's a shame-free invite. You don't have to do anything that you can't do. Just go sign up. It takes about 90 minutes. It's all online, and, and we promise that you'll just be drenched over and over with this witness from God. It isn't a cure. Heaven's the cure, but it, it should shape your hope. It should make you smile a little or a lot, and you may be surprised to hear that this is the passion, the secret workings, one theologian calls it, of the Holy Spirit in your inner being to make you feel this height and width and length and depth of this perfect love of Jesus uh, for you, this witness of God. And imagine right now looking up into Jesus's faith by faith and seeing it light up. His eyes dilate, the big old grin on his face, because he sees you and you see him and somehow in a way that only he can experience, you just know that he is so happy to be with you right now. He would rather be nowhere else. Now, wouldn't that be something? It might just begin to rewire that inner brain wiring related to relationships and connectedness, enoughness. 
We say that we Christians should never deny that deep longing for more of God's witness, uh, beginning right now and continuing on. Not a theological or philosophical thing, a box check, but something that powerful and makes a real difference and it should affect fears, this witness. Don't fall back to lifeless Christianityism, which is basically living it out on your own capacity and strength to deal with your celestial longings and fears and loneliness and sense of not enoughness. You know, you can get a dog, but that only lasts for a little while. So anyway, do the dance now, www.the-dance.org. You won't regret it. You'll be so glad you did. And we will pick up this series next time, the God With Us series, from another passage from Isaiah. All right. Take heart, child of God. I'm Dr. Lauren DeVille, a practicing naturopathic physician in Tucson, Arizona. In my podcast, Christian Natural Health, my guests and I discuss topics ranging from nutrition, sleep, hormone balancing, and exercise to specific health concerns like hair loss, anxiety, and hypothyroidism. I'll also interweave biblical principles as they apply throughout the podcast because true health is body, mind, and spirit. Listen to Christian Natural Health for free at lifeaudio.com or on your favorite podcast platform.